0: Okay, perhaps we should start. I want to pick up where we left off last night. This is part two. <laughs> um, obviously, last night, if you remember, I was offering you all of the images that we have in. There are actually some more, but that's pretty well most of the important images that we have in the sangutanikara and the connected discourses of the Buddha. So we have all these different images. Remember the probe probing to see the arrowhead to feel it, to feel the arrowhead. We have the images of the cow herder sometimes sitting back relaxed, letting his his cattle wander, sometimes having to you know really quite get them back out of the fields if they've strayed into the fields, um, really attentive to where they've gone. Um, the runner. Uh, the messenger entering through the city gate, and the and the guardian at the city gate speeding uh, the messenger to the king. Um, the mes- the um, guardian at the gate guarding, letting in only those who are the friends of the city, and keeping out the enemies of the city. Those who he knows are up to no good. And then finally, of course, oh, well, we had the one with the, the man with the the bowl of oil on his head, of precious oil, um, with the, with the uh, person walking behind him. If he spills a drop, he's going to lop his head off. Uh, it's a lovely image. <laughs> and then we came finally to the, the latter image, which is the, uh, one of the most striking ones, I think, we find in the Sangyuta Nakaya, which is the image or the parable of the six animals, of the six creatures, so I'm going to kind of set it up for you the way it is in the text without actually reading the text. It's much longer here. Imagine, imagine what would happen if you took six lengths of rope and tied one end each of each to six creatures. And the creatures are a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey. Okay, Then tied the other end of these into a big knot and let go what do you think would happen? (laughs) it's a slightly rhetorical question (laughs) Uh, each of these animals as we realise would actually pull in different directions wouldn't they? all of the animals would pull in different ways you know, trying to return to their favourite places, trying to return to their feeding grounds, The, the snake would slither towards its nest in the anthill, the crocodile would pull for the river, the bird would fly up into the air, the dog would head for the village and the jackal would try to go to the charnel ground where the bodies are and the monkey would scamper for the trees now it's a very graphic image. I hope you can picture the scene um, that the Buddha is giving in this uh, little story. Yeah. A jackal. It's a small wild dog. Yes. Now, the Buddha tells this story to illustrate the state of the undisciplined mind. Yeah. This is the undisciplined mind. It's pulling in all directions. Now, probably a lot of you have had some experience of this this week, of your mind pulling in all different directions, of the senses being pulled out in different ways to different things. Each of these represents, as I think I said last night, each of these represents one of the senses. The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. remember the mind in Buddhism is a sixth sense what it senses if you like is mental phenomena this is what it does just as the ear picks up audible sounds the mind connects with mental phenomena so each of the animals is drawn to its own domain to its customary feeding ground each wants to get back you know, it's pulling in its own direction to get back. So the eye is looking. You know, even sometimes, you know, seasoned meditators will suddenly go like this. Look around, uh, particularly if they're clock watching. Uh, often this is the way. the um, The nose will often, you know, be smells from the kitchen. <laughs> What's coming? And then there will be fantasies woven around that. Then the ear is trying to discern, isn't it? It's pulled off, you know, the sounds, the birds. What's going on out there? What's that funny sound out there that I can hear? You know, it's trying to figure out what, what is there. Now, I don't need to go into all of the senses, but I think, I hope you get the impression of what's actually happening is they're being pulled in all of these different directions. Uh, and so what we end up with is a chaos. Yeah. The mind is a chaosmos. Of experience, you know, when it's trying to do all of these things at once, mostly they're going in search of pleasure. Yeah. This is what mostly our senses are aiming for some sensory pleasure. Yeah. Now, he describes this situation as dwelling with what he calls a limited mind. The mind is extremely limited in its capacity when it is in this state, this state of indiscipline, actually, uh, when everything is pulling in different directions. And out of that list, I think I said to you last night, I think probably the mind is the crocodile. It's the one that's snapping and snarling (laughs) all over the place, trying, trying to head for its river. Now, the person with a limited mind in this way, with, you know, with our senses going in all directions, always looking for pleasure, always seeking for something which is gratifying. The person who is, if you like, enmeshed in this, the Buddha says, has limited or no freedom. Yeah. Has very limited or no freedom at all. The solution he offers and I think I mentioned this last night in the the second part of this, a solution he offers is to drive a stake through the central knot. So the central knot that's binding all of the pieces of rope together to which the animals are tied, you get a stake and you bang that into the ground, holding that knot in place. Binding all six creatures to one spot. This is what it's doing. Now you can see where this analogy runs, can't you? Because the one spot, of course, is our object. is the breath and the breath situated within the body. So this becomes a mindfulness of body. So the stake is the designation for the mindfulness of body. And it's the means, so the Buddha says, of attaining freedom. Freedom comes through discipline through the disciplined mind. Yeah. As I had a teacher once say to me, there is only freedom within discipline. Yeah. There is no freedom outside of discipline. Now, if you don't like the word discipline, which is a very unpalatable world in the modern, word in the modern world these days, then structure. You need structure. Yeah. There needs to be some kind of structuring in order for us to create and allow ourselves to have freedom so there's freedom within structure there's freedom within discipline outside of it there is none at all now this seems to be slightly counterintuitive doesn't it you know, it's turning on its head our ordinary notions of freedom and offering this, this counterintuitive image you know, it also could be seen as paradoxical here yeah, usually, we consider ourselves free only when we can do what we want. Yeah, that's normal definition of freedom in the West. You know, freedom to do what we want, you know, come what may. This is this is our normal definition of freedom. We would consider being tethered um, to a post probably as the worst kind of bondage. Yeah, this is what we'd we'd think. Being tied to something. However, let's examine the image just a little bit closer and try and figure out what the Buddha is doing here. Now, each of these six creatures feels itself to be free if it can go where it wants. But each is in fact bound in several ways, each of these creatures, First, it's compelled by instinct, basically to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Next, it can generally, it generally only knows to seek its gratification in its familiar habits, you know, in its familiar habits, in its familiar territory. That's the other thing. And finally, it can only make headway towards its desired object if it gains a temporary advantage in the tug of war with the others. That's going on. Because remember, all these creatures are still tethered. Before long, each animal will expend its energy. It will struggle, and it will struggle, and it will struggle, and eventually it will tire itself out in the struggling. Uh, And it will eventually be dragged along by the strongest of the animals here. Um, I think my bet is on the crocodile again. (laughs) Yeah, in this little tug of war. So the six senses of the human mind and body are basically bound by an internal constraint which is more compelling than any rope in the image, insofar, I think, as they will always pull in the direction of agreeable objects and regard disagreeable objects as literally objectionable, as repulsive. This is the internal constraint of the human mind. From the Buddha's perspective, from the perspective of these early teachings, the freedom to pursue this compulsion is a completely illusory, is an illusory sense of freedom. It is no freedom at all. Yet, yeah. yeah, this is what we associate with being free. We associate it with being free is to pursue those agreeable objects that we want yeah, and to avoid the disagreeable objects. And the Buddha is literally saying, This is no freedom at all. Yeah. This is just reactive habit patterns, yet again, asserting themselves. Yeah. This sense of freedom is also concocted and constricted by a deluded mind. Yeah. At the base of this is the deluded mind that thinks that gratification is what life is about. Yeah. This is what we do. It is a bit like telling an addict, an addict of some sort, that they are free to stop using drugs if they want to. Yeah. Or like an inmate on an island feeling free to go anywhere on the island that he or she chooses to. Yeah. There's no real freedom in this. Now, mindfulness practice, because this is what this is all about. This is what this image is telling us. It's within this section on the, in the Satipatthana in in the Sangyutta, which is dealing with all of the images of mindfulness and all the definitions of what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness practice offers the restraint that's necessary to overcome the tug of desire, mm-hmm. the desire of the senses. We go out into the ordinary world with literally hungry senses. We have hungry eyes, we have hungry ears, we have hungry noses, uh, always looking for the pleasurable. Always looking for that satisfaction. Our senses in our normal, limited sense, are nearly always scattered in this way. They're nearly always using the image of the animals like the animals pulling in all directions. So, in mindfulness, as we notice the mind wandering off, coming back to the practice of the week that we've been doing, off to explore a gratifying train of thought, or we notice the body's urge to, you know, jostle itself into a more comfortable position, we gently abandon the impulse and return our attention to the primary object. This is what we've been doing all week in different ways. Yeah. Even when we've been doing Vedana and using the breath just as the background, the breath becomes the anchor. Let me use another image, the image I used of a boat Adrift. This is not one that you find in the text, but it's like a boat adrift on a river. It's drifting. Sometimes you feel there's control, but then it gets out of control. And what we do when the boat comes out of control is we literally drop anchor. This is what we're doing. We are dropping anchor with our primary object and the primary object in most of these meditations will be the breath we literally anchor ourselves in the breath again to stop the drifting deluded mind from wandering in all of its directions also we do this as you probably noticed even in the course of one session again and again and again and again yeah? isn't it interesting how often the mind wanders off in the course of a session yeah usually you're doing well if you can keep your attention particularly if you're beginners if you can keep your attention on the breath for a couple of seconds yeah <laughs> yeah it doesn't usually get much better than that in the beginning Yeah, and so it's a, it's a constant dialectic between the primary object and our minds pulling yeah pulling in these different directions. Uh, so we use this object always to keep coming back again and again and again and anchoring ourselves down. You know, until the mind actually gets the picture. It starts to become more contented. Yeah. Now there's another image actually It's used, um, again it's in the Pani Canon, of training a wild elephant. And again, what you do with the wild elephant is you tie it to a stake. And what it's going to do is going to try and pull the stake out of the ground. Yeah. It's actually going to try to do this. And it will try again and again and again to release itself by trying to pull the stake out of the ground until it eventually gets the picture that it's not going to get away. And then it lies down. Yeah. This is like our minds. Our mind is the wild elephant, our mind is the animals, our mind is the boat. Whichever image works for you best. You know, this is what it's doing. It needs to you know, it needs to find out that it can't get away because it keeps being brought back to the same object again and again and again and again. You'd think it would be easy, wouldn't you? You know, Just sit there and watch your breath. Yeah. It sounds really easy. I mean, meditation instructions could be so simple. You know, just sit there and watch your breath. But of course, as you know in the practice, it isn't like that at all. And we do discover very, very quickly, and I think I used this phrase earlier on in the week, that minds have minds of their own. You know, they don't remain at your beck and call, They do what they want. They go off to try and find their feeding grounds in different ways. So it starts to settle down. Uh, When it starts to settle down, it becomes considerably more powerful. It becomes much, much more focused. And as a result, of course, of the settled mind, not the agitated, chaotic mind, we become more empowered. we may remain and become more empowered to actually direct this focus and direct this attention to wherever we need to direct it in our lives. So that, in a sense, we start to take control over our lives through this sense of empowerment that we gain with the settled mind. So the story ends, uh, that the Buddha tells in this, with uh, the lovely picture of all six animals lying down together. <laughs> you know, all of them lying contentedly in one another's company. You know, no longer exerting and striving and pulling for something else. Similarly, when the tugging of sense-desire and aversion Starts to be quieted, and these are the two main polarities of you know our minds: sense, desire, and aversion. You know, if you look in a meditation session just for those, you will see them arising again and again and again and again. You know, it could go a bit like the hindrances that I said the other night. You know, it could go sense, desire, aversion, aversion, sense, desire, sense, desire, aversion, aversion, sense, desire. <laughs> yeah. And it could go on like that for the whole of the session, if you're just actually noting what's arising. Um, you'll get thrown in a bit of sloth and torpor as well that too, uh, when it all becomes too much. So when sense, desire, and aversion have been quieted, when restlessness, restlessness and sluggishness have been balanced out, when doubt is put aside you know, for a time the mind is able to tend to experience much, much more openly. Now, one of the definitions of sati, one of the definitions of mindfulness, is that mindfulness moves in close to experience. It stays close to experience. This is the whole purpose of it. It stays as close to pleasant experience and unpleasant experience. Herein is the roots of equanimity. The ability to stay close to whatever the experience is that is happening. Now, I'm not talking about major trauma and real upset and things like this, in which case protective awareness might be more necessary. But in most cases, when we're just dealing with the ordinary travails of the mind, the mind in this chaotic state, most of it is just the sense, desire and the aversion. Yeah. We stay close to the sense, desire and we stay close to the aversion but without getting caught up in it. Yeah. Without hooking into it. Without being taken along by it. Yeah. Normally, of course, we find ourselves following, as I said earlier on, that gratifying train of thought. Yeah. The thoughts that you don't like, you don't pursue. Now, that usually ends up in our normal lives in something like repression. Repression is the best way I know of feeding monsters. If you really, really want some monsters in your life, just push things away. Don't look at them. Don't acknowledge them. Push them down. And as we all know, you can't keep a good repression down. (laughs) You know, it always likes to make itself known at some point. And that usually, by the time we've fed it, has become something far bigger than the original thing that we were dealing with or turned our gaze away from, averted our attention from in a desire not to confront the difficult. So actually part of mindfulness is very much the confrontation with the difficult. Confrontation does sound actually confrontational, and it's not meant to. It's more of the embracing of the difficult. We begin to embrace the difficult rather than evade it, which is our natural strategy to evade it, to pursue the pleasurable and to evade the difficult. So here we are standing close to both experiences, Embracing the difficult, but without actually getting caught up in making it even more difficult and actually acknowledging and being aware of the sense desire when it arises. So when the senses are no longer struggling to reach pleasing forms and no longer regarding unpleasing forms as repulsive, the mind is able to see much, much more clearly. We can begin to see things clearly. We can actually see what is happening. And what is happening with all of these things. Again, it's been a common theme throughout the week in the talks I've given, even this small introductory instructions in the morning has been that we're watching a stream of rising and passing. for rising and passing away the very nature of all of our thoughts both pleasurable and unpleasurable that which is pleasing and that which is repulsive is that it arises and passes away we need to literally get this into our head if we haven't uh, taken it in already is this is what we're watching yeah this is, the, if, this is the, I don't know, this is the soap opera of the mind. <laughs> you know, why Actually, I always say, why bother to watch soap operas? You know, if you want to see greed, aversion, and delusion, just close your eyes. <laughs> you know, it's the best way of beginning to see it. You know, it's really entertaining. Um, but joking aside, this is what we're doing. We are actually watching this stream of arisings and passings away. This is the very nature of thought, that it's impermanent. This is the very nature, even of sense pleasure, if gratified. It arises and passes away. And it arises and passes away. As does the unpleasant, it arises and passes away. And this is something that actually it takes quite a lot of comprehension for. No doubt you've all got it cognitively. You've all got it. It's a really simple proposition, isn't it? Everything we look at, everything that um, is going on in our minds and our senses is arising and passing away. Unfortunately, it doesn't really quite get there yet for most of us. So we still pursue our sense pleasures and we still get upset at the difficult we don't want to know, and we still repress, and we still do all the same things, because in a way, it's like we don't want to know. We don't really, really deeply want to know this. This is actually the deluded mind. The best definition, really, of what's called avidya, avidya is the Pali word that translates as ignorance, Um, we have to hear the ignorance here as not just not knowing but actually almost going back to the etymology of the the English word this is ignorance we actually want to ignore what is happening because there is still some deep rooted addictiveness to the being attached to the pleasures of the senses and you know the uh, sense of that which we consider to be unpleasant or repulsive or difficult. We don't want to know about them. Yeah. Until it becomes, in some senses, embodied, that this sense of the arising, passing away becomes an embodied understanding of experience, then we're always going to be caught in this tug of war of all of our six senses we're going to be caught there now in the mode of mind that we've been talking about the mode of mind where this is no longer going on when we actually see the arising and passing away the Buddha speaks about this as being the mind which is free of limitation. It's free of limitation. It becomes unlimited. It's capable of experiencing far greater freedom. It experiences freedom through understanding. And this is what the waking up process is. It's beginning to actually understand the way things are. Yeah? that's the marked definition according to these ancient texts between the ordinary person what is called Putajana the ordinary person and an Arahant or a Buddha is that what they have woken up to in each of the cases both of the Arahant and the Buddha the Arahant by the way is the figure who achieves liberation but doesn't actually become a Buddha the Arahant and the Buddha, achieve this waking up, the waking up to the way things are. Yeah. This is the awakening. So it's the waking up is the overcoming of the ignorance. Yeah. So we live in the sleep of ignorance. You know, going back to something I was saying in one of the previous evenings, we live in the sleep of delusion. And if you really, really want to live, then we need to wake up. Yeah. It's like spending our life daydreaming, spending our life fantasizing. Most of the daydreams and fantasies end in literally in tears. Yeah. They don't get us to where we want. Um, somehow, life, with all of its difficulty, obtrudes into into those fantasies and into those daydreams, and they might be extremely well constructed fantasies and daydreams. We all live fantastical lives. It's one of the definitions, I think, of the way that we live, often in the Western world in particular. But I think this is a human problem, not just a one culture problem. But we live these fantastical lives, literally not wanting to deal with the way things are. And so when we're talking about waking up, we're waking up to the way things are. In this process of, if you like, mini-perceptions that I spoke about last night of beginning to wake up very slowly to things. It's not generally going to come in one great big rush. It's generally going to come in the small perceptions, the small elements of freedom that we start to build in our lives when we start to free ourselves from habitualized perceptions. And this is where part of the problem lies. It lies in the problem of perception. Yeah. Perception going astray. Yeah, we talked, you know, I talked for two nights virtually. I could have gone on. Yeah. I had to rein myself in. <laughs> yeah. But I could have gone on about you know, how these distortions of perception that I spoke about ramify in virtually every area of our lives so we misperceive almost willfully misperceive things and in misperceiving them we get the kind of world in the sense that we deserve when we mistake that which is changing for something that we believe is unchanging unchanging when we mistake that which is actually dukkha for pleasure. I'm getting into it again. Look at me. I've so <laughs> only got to offer me the distortions of perception. I'm off. <laughs> but, but, you know, once we get into looking, you know, even just at the way that we pursue those things which we believe are, to, are actually pleasurable. Um, and actually, when we really examine them, when we begin to examine them deeply, we find out they're distress areas. They're areas where we cause ourselves pain. They're areas where we cause ourselves distress, and yet we call it pleasurable. Yeah, I think it's worth thinking about because often that's what we're doing, and we say, we're deeply attached." Of course to our pleasures but when we really begin to open to them and really begin to stand close and understand them then what we actually find is actually they are destructive self-harming behaviors a lot of the time they are actually dukkha so this requires us to stand close as I said to our experience. Now the freedom that the Buddha speaks about in regard to the unlimited mind, the mind which actually, when these things start to drop off, when we begin to see the the mind is simply passing passage. This is what it is. It's passing passage. There is no veracity, if any, at all, to our thought processes. Yeah. Now, as I quoted from that book the other night, they are stories which we've been being told. You know, trust me, I'm telling you stories. They are that and nothing else. When we experience this greater freedom through understanding, it's freedom doesn't come from a license um, to explore a shallow terrain defined by likes and dislikes. That is the terrain in which we normally operate. It's a very, very shallow terrain of simple likes and dislikes. Like, don't like. Like, don't like. This seems there seems a tremendous paucity to human experience if it's just defined by a series of likes and dislikes. I don't know if you ever feel this. You know, simply when I'm expressing, oh, I like that. No, I don't. I like that. No, I don't like that. <laughs> It seems terribly, terribly shallow. I don't know how it appears to you, but it seems to me that life has so much more to offer than simple gratification of likes and the avoidance of dislikes within our lives. Life can be, as I say, tremendously anemic with that, with very, very little blood in it whatsoever. So we don't the freedom is not to explore this shallow terrain of likes and dislikes but rather the ability to shake off the pathology of desire altogether. And desire is a pathology. It's a pathological form of behaviour of wanting and wanting and wanting. And wanting is wanting some things not to happen and wanting some things to happen. The wanting is attached particularly to the desires which we have for materiality. This is something we really well know in our Western world. I've said quite enough. You know, I've said quite a lot about it already in the other talks as we've gone through these evenings. But this you know, c- continuous wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting. You know, when people come to look at us, that we, they find us wanting this is where they find us in this state of just simply wanting now the thing that we know about wanting I think if we really examine it and I did mention this in one of the other talks I know is that it actually has no terminal point it will never end it has no terminus where that desire gets satisfied this is the thirst that's spoken about as being tanha. Because tanha, the word in Pali, literally, in Pali, means an unquenchable thirst. Yeah. It literally can never be satisfied. We have an ordinary word for thirst in Pali, which is also is, is pipasa. But pipasa is very different. This ordinary thirst can be quenched. Yeah that ordinary thirst can be slaked by a glass of water or a drink whereas this thirst is incapable by its very nature of finding this terminal point point. Yeah. and the tanha is for the desires of sensory objects, of sensory things for innovation for newness, all the things I mentioned I think it was last night you know, kama. Um, actually interesting, Kama is an Indian god by the way, you probably know this from Kama Sutra, yeah. uh, the very famous uh, well, text of which usually only the salacious bits gets translated. <laughs> you know, it's actually a, a little textbook for the um, Brahmin Indian about town and how they can take their pleasures. But the word Kama itself means any kind of pleasurable activity. You know the ways that we take our pleasure and it's an Indian god which is basically the same as Eros in the western tradition even the imagery is the same he stands there with a the little bow and arrow yeah. except the, the arrows here are arrows of flowers in this imagery uh, unlike the Roman god um, the Greco-Roman god so there is this we're being fired out with arrows of desire all the time here's an arrow to start probing with our mindfulness to start probing into the wound that this desire creates within us it's again a very very constricted view of the human condition which is simply limited the limited mind again to wanting, 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 wanting that life is nothing but a succession of trying to stop this thirst, but actually never succeeding. So there has to be a sense of disenchantment with this, a growing disenchantment, and the freedom um, and the mindfulness. sorry, Sorry, I'm going to reformulate that sentence. The mindfulness is something which aids the disenchantment. We begin literally to see through the, the strategies, the, the, the stratagems of desire, which are so much part of our lives. And then there is another desire that we have, the, the thirst to become something or someone you know, in this world. You know, it seems to me that everybody in the Western world now wants to be a celebrity, yeah. whether they can do anything or not. You know, Everybody wants to be a celebrity. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants their five minutes. Yeah. Everybody seems to want that. This is just a, a very magnified form of the desire to be. Yeah. It's called bhava tanha in Pali. The desire to become something in this world. Yeah. We become all sorts of things. The desire to become It might be there, for example, in the desire to achieve a better rebirth. This is a sense of becoming. The Buddha, again, even in a culture which valued this idea of rebirth, said that the point of the practice is not to become. Not even in the sense of a good rebirth. So... Desire to become something, to um, to be me, to be famous, to have power, to have status, to have my five minutes of glory, um, to be recognised is again another profound desire, and one again probably that is going to have no terminal point to it. Yeah. There is always the more, the greater desire for self aggrandizement in some way now that might be seen as one directedness of the mind but there is also a desire sometimes to not to be and its worst form that takes the form of suicidal ideation suicidal attitudes the desire not to want to be at all It can give rise to aggressive impulses. Self-harming, for example, as well. All attached to this desire, in a sense, to erase yourself. Also, this sense of erasure, or desire to erase yourself, can come out in almost the annihilating behavior, self-annihilating behavior, that then is passed on to try to literally wipe away the other as well to have no relationship so desire is fairly pernicious this is what we can say about it, this form of desire is extremely pernicious Mm -hmm. this is what we're probing with our mindfulness we're probing um, we're probing the landscapes of desire the very landscapes that we live within And that is the landscape that's extremely familiar to us. So it's the ability, when we talk about freedom, to shake off the constraints of these desires altogether. To actually free ourselves from the constraints of this type of desiring. It's the plunging into field of experience as it is as it comes to you now you can only take my word for this but you, you can do this in your own practice and find out the more you do this if you really want excitement plunge into the field of experience you get more than enough excitement in the field of experience of what is going on within us if we really start to pay attention if we really start to move in close to it rather than avoid it mm-hmm. So we turn our attention uh, out to what one sees, for example. Let's just use the ocular metaphor here. What one sees. We pay attention to it, to really beginning to see it. Fritz Perls, the gestalt psychologist, once had a phrase which I love, which is, lose your mind and come to your senses. (laughs) What we're grasping at is usually some illusion of pleasure. We don't see the colors that are so vibrant, so forceful in our world because we're tied up with the stratagems of the mind, you know, which is usually simply trying to avoid things and get things. It's usually doing that. Now, these are generalizations, as you're all probably aware, you know, but they're generalizations, I think, that, in a way, cover a lot of what we do, you know. They're not meant to be exhaustive, but they're meant to make us look at a certain field and range of our experience and how we pursue that. So we pay attention to seeing, we pay attention to hearing, smelling, tasting and touching. It's uh, one of the most succinct definitions of the path that the Buddha gives is in in a little Pali text called the Yudhana. In this text, this guy who's a renunciate who dresses in bark, in wood bark, you can imagine how comfortable that must be. <laughs> he walks the whole way from Western India to visit the Buddha, um, who's teaching up in one of the towns in Northeast India, and he, in a little town called Savati, which is one of the places where he gives the majority of his teachings. And he comes to him and he says to the Buddha, I want to really study with you, I want to know your teachings. And the Buddha says, at this moment I'm you know, engaged in doing something else, I'm rather busy, you know, you'll have to come back later. And he says, look, I've walked the whole way across India to come and see you, can you please just give it to me? Give me the teaching as, you know, as quickly as you can. And the Buddha says, okay, in the seeing, only the seeing. In the hearing, only the hearing. In the sensing, only the sensing. That is the teaching. Yeah. Now, if you notice what's going on in that phrase, in the hearing, only the hearing, in the, in the seeing, only the seeing, in the sensing, only the sensing, what he's talking about is we're not adding anything to it. That we really see when we see. You know, this is not seeing through desire, but it's seeing. This is not hearing through desire and aversion, but hearing. The same could be said obviously of seeing. And all of the other senses, you know, the sensing covers the other senses, in the sensing only in the sensing, that we actually are not perceiving through merely the lineaments of, of desire and aversion. You know? We are actually freed from that. This is what the path is about freeing ourselves from that entrapment to the push and pull of our desires and our aversions. This is what the practice of mindfulness is. It's also turning our attention to how, and this is really the important dimension. When I say, you know, in the in the seeing only the seeing, in the hearing only the hearing. It's how one hears, how one sees. Not so much about what one is seeing, or how, you know, or what one is hearing, but how one is doing it. Yeah. What is the quality of the mind that you bring to that hearing? Yeah. For example, when somebody is telling you something how often is your mind cleared as a space to allow that person's story to manifest? Yeah. For it to be there? Yeah. This is a question, yeah. just in ordinary conversation, how often do we have a, a cleared mind, a mind that hears what that person is saying. And hearing actually can go down a lot deeper than just the more mere words. Yeah. So this is a very practical example that we're all engaged in. Yeah. How often do we walk out and really, as I say, see what is before us? This is a good exercise to do if you're on a walk, to look at something and really see if you can open just to the sense of looking looking without gratification without looking for some form of sensory gratification from from what is going on in the seeing process so what we're used to normally is used to thinking of freedom as being free to do what we want the Buddha sees freedom as the freedom from wanting yeah. I'll say that again because it's a very important phrase yeah? we normally see the freedom that we often want to possess as being the freedom to do what we want the Buddha sees freedom as the freedom from wanting yeah. that we don't want at all so the post is not a fetter at all and I'll try and bring this to a conclusion. The post is not a fetter. It's not something which is tying us or constraining us anyway. But the post becomes a way of training the mind. And this is what our mindfulness is. It's a training of the mind. A training of the mind to redirect our perception in such a way that it genuinely sees, hears taste, touches and smells normally our perception is infected it's infected obviously by what I've been mentioning you know, quite frequently in the course of this talk this evening our desire and our aversion it's infected often also by all of our past associations as well You know, we don't really perceive the thing Freshly, what we do is we simply re perceive it through all of our associations. Yeah. So, actually, what we're usually doing is comparing this sunset with the one that we saw two weeks ago, or ten days ago, or three years ago. Yeah. If I was being really cynical, I mean, a question might arise, such as Do we actually perceive anything new? Yeah. do we actually perceive anything new the only time it seems often to myself um, new perceptions tend to arise is when we're put in an alien culture yeah. when actually we begin to be feeling a little bit like children again, not quite knowing what goes where and how things work and you know the culture or the landscape is so utterly different from anything I know that we actually open our eyes for a little while. We actually begin to hear and smell and taste in different ways. And this is what actually you know, often being in another culture will do to you. There's an interesting psychological phenomenon which has been, um, there's been some experimentation on, which of course is the reason why life tends to get faster the older you get. Mm-hmm. The experience I'm sure we've all had. Do you know, remember as a child where summers used to seem endless? You know, the School holidays, I always remember. It's an enormous tract of time. <laughs> you know, until the misery of going back to school again. <laughs> but there used to be this vast tract of time. And part of the reason and the experimentation they've done that was discovered is that when we're children, we're always discovering something new. We're always seeing something new. It's as if when we've got older, the world literally has become boringly obvious. Yeah. We've seen it all until perhaps you go to another culture yeah, where they do things very differently from the way we do here. So, mindfulness is the way of beginning to cleanse The faculty of perception. Now, if this was a retreat that was going on longer, I'd give you a whole evening on the faculty of perception and how perception is intertwined both with real perceiving or actually with this distorted perception that I spoke about and the mechanisms behind this, how this actually occurs. But I'll just limit myself to a few words here. Normally what we find is perception simply going astray... Into memory, to reperception, yeah. and to all of the associations which are associated, which are there with memory, so that we are not really encountering our objects. We are not really encountering the objects of our seeing, our tasting, our touching, or even the objects of the mind. Yeah. When we bring an attitude of interest and curiosity and the moving in close, it starts to defamiliarize that which appears to be so familiar. One art form in the Western world can do this for us, um, which is, you know, or help us on the way to it, and this art form is poetry. Poetry, some of the greatest poetry, does exactly that. It takes the familiar and defamiliarizes. And all artistic forms, in some way or another, do that. Yeah. But poetry is a very particularly good example of that, where we take that which is, you know, often common objects, common objects of perception, and defamiliarize itself to get back to the freshness of perceiving something. Now, this is what's going on with mindfulness when we start to really, really use mindfulness when we start to anchor the mind we come into an openness of really beginning to see things i'm using that as a generalization the ocular metaphor for covering all of our senses so that we really can feel that we're here living rather than sleepwalking now the question is how do you like your life do you want to wake up or do you want to sleepwalk And it's a real question. I mean, I'm posing it in a slightly jokey fashion, but it's a very, very real question. Because if you're committed to the waking up, then you'll do the necessary things. You'll develop mindfulness. You will look at the way our senses are operating. You'll be interested and curious about how our mind is actually working, how it is distorting things how it is riven with aversion, how it is riven with desire. If you are simply interested in continuing sleepwalking, then you will just accept that all as a given and rest there. Thank you. Okay, well, we have just about 15 minutes before the final sitting. And tomorrow morning, what I shall do is I'll try and draw some of these strands into sort of practical information about what we do.